Sexual sovereignty versus indoctrination. Education requires promiscuity. I am suffering through my final course of my sporadic 20-year-long journey through the harrowing of my own personal hell to acquire a bachelor's degree. Never mind that I never wanted one in the first place. I am innately exactly the type of girl who honors my father and mother, even to my own detriment. Already at 17, before I set foot in those halls, I had a sense of the demonic nature of the university institution. On one occasion, between sobs, I informed my parents that they were sending me into a pit of demons by forcing me to go to college. I didn't have the courage or pluck to simply defy their wishes, however, unfortunately for me. The suffering I have endured as a result of my exposure to the insidious scheme that calls itself a higher education in our culture cannot be adequately catalogued here, but take my bottomless rancor as surfeit, if only to save yourself the trouble of reading the endless list of grievances that I could otherwise populate. This final insult of my tortuous, protracted, degree-seeking tribulation is called Intro to the Visual Arts, during which course I must allow innumerable images to enter me while I sit submissively and receive the unwanted penetration. These images are not just pictures, they are pieces of propaganda, and it is beyond my capacity to vet or even ascertain the agenda that drives the creation and distribution of each of these works. I can imagine, however, that the Cretan who placed a urinal on a pedestal and demanded that people admire the artifact for its artistic merit by simply changing its context from a bathroom to an art gallery is simply a mischievous trickster taking the piss out of his urbane audience and reveling in the degree to which they will submit to his depravity without protest. This seems like exactly the type of character who enjoys humiliating women sexually, perhaps by taking a piss on them, pushing them as far as he can before they complain or perhaps storm out in a humiliated rage. This man is, as far as I can tell, a scoundrel, and here am I, sitting quietly, well, not so quietly, I admit, in class, subject to this deviant prank. That is the stated purpose of this class, according to my instructor to learn how to be proper subjects of the artist's whims. I personally would not subject myself sexually to a man who derived pleasure from my shame. In order to attain my degree, however, I must receive the propaganda created by just such men, thereby violating my own sovereignty. If not on the sexual level explicitly, then on another dimension, intellectual, emotional, psychological, which nevertheless mirrors and interacts with my sexuality. I am, spoiler alert, one whole being, and all parts of me inform and interdepend upon all other parts. I have no concrete evidence whatsoever concerning any of these artists' intentions or the message they wish to convey, but that is exactly the point. I do not know these people. I have no idea about their character, the state of their health, the degree of their decadence, or, to say it another way, the type and number of the demons by whom they may be possessed. I have nothing but this expression in front of me, and the maker being sight unseen, I am compelled to welcome that expression into me. I have to allow it to penetrate my eyes and do its potentially vicious work on my sacred insides. Forcing myself to sit before these myriad images felt like submitting to unwanted sexual in intercourse, if you will excuse the dramatic analogy. This incursion, while unwelcome, is still subject to my choice. 
I have a choice, though it's not an easy choice to make. I have made a deal with a demon named University. Some social esteem in exchange for twenty years of misery and tens of thousands of dollars of debt. It is a bad deal, but I can't back out of it now. I only have this one godforsaken class left. Mea culpa, no doubt. Mea maxima irrefutable. Culpa. I am not writing to excuse myself or to shift the blame. The fault is mine. I am the one who stays. I am the one who has let this system abuse me relentlessly and viciously. I have allowed this system to ruin me. It is too late for me, but for the sake of all that is holy, may I perhaps be a voice out there that warns those still pure and untouched maidens, or their naive and well-meaning parents, stay away. A university education is just a prolonged experience of mental and emotional and often physical rape. At least that is what it has felt like to me. Though I cannot unfuck myself in this particular regard, perhaps it is not too late for you, dear reader, or for someone you love. Perhaps, on the other hand, we are all bound to our own fates and cannot escape them. My own fate has bound me to this demonic institution, and maybe I am really writing not to be helpful, but instead simply to vent. In my experience, the violent penetration required by a university education, i.e. program of indoctrination, is frequent and repeated. There is always something new to take in, and obviously not just paintings. They are never done injecting ideas, ideologies, theories, laws, rules, findings, studies, texts, literature, lectures, seminars, projects, diagrams, charts, graphs, images, etc. into the subjected student. One must remain as relaxed and ultimately as uncritical as possible to avoid being literally ripped apart by the inundation. You have to dissociate to survive. If you have your own values, you must surrender them, because holding on to anything only increases the friction and therefore the pain of being entered repeatedly day after day. You have to let go of your values, or better yet, simply adopt theirs. It's easiest if you become what they want you to be. If you submit to the mold into which they press you, there is less of you to cut away, and you therefore suffer less pain. It's best of all if you can pretend that you like it, or at least be polite. This improves your chance at getting good grades, internships, scholarships, and other opportunities. A smile certainly goes a long way. The more they like you, the more they forgive any demerit on your part. It doesn't matter if you think, it only matters if you are skillful enough to repeat. But of course, in your own words, like chat GPT. The university presents itself as an institution that worships critical and independent thought. Really, the student is only allowed to be critical of the ideas with which the university disagrees. All independent thoughts must be well-cited and supported by the already extant literature. The amount of time required to simply understand the basic assertions of the multitudinous force-fed theories and ideologies preclude critical and independent thinking anyway. To manage a social life as well as physical and emotional health, most students are able only to ingest the ideas to a depth that allows those ideas to be regurgitated on demand for the purposes of assessment, tests, papers, projects, etc. There is scarcely sufficient time, and not even that, to actually understand the ideas. Neither is the student at her leisure to vet any of the ideas and ideologies to which she is subject. She is not at her leisure to fully understand the implications and merits of those ingested ideas relative to other ideas. She is also not at her leisure to seek out alternative ideas, which might constitute competing ideologies that are often demeaned and misrepresented in her course of studies. 
Certainly she can choose a field of study, but after that choice she is required to take certain courses and meet learning objectives set for her by the university system. She invests a great deal of money, or someone does so, on her behalf, and she also invests one of the most fertile and valuable reproductive periods of her life into this process of indoctrination. The coercion to do so is subtle, but nevertheless powerful. She is led to believe that life without a degree is a life of poverty, ignorance, irrelevance, illness, limitations, financial dependence, boredom, and undesirable mating prospects. Again, she could resist at any point in this process, and if her feminine instincts are intact and allowed to guide her, she certainly will. But there is a great and impressive social machine that is vested against her resistance, and effectively geared to almost guarantee her compliance. The amount of energy necessary to rage against this machine may indeed be available to her, but would come at the cost of many, if not most, of the other things she might value in her life, especially if she is a good girl well-trained to be compliant, pleasing, and polite. As Nietzsche says, goodness in a woman is already a form of degeneration. In my case, it was a tragic weakening of my own instincts that allowed me to comply with what my parents thought I should do, which I could only do by ignoring the increasingly hysterical warnings of my mistrusted and maligned, but actually beautiful, accurate, and self-protective instincts. A good woman, a healthy woman, a woman who protects her sovereignty, is not necessarily a good girl in this sense. She is not willing to be compliant, pleasing, or polite where any of these social virtues would lead her to compromise her virginity, i.e. her sexual sovereignty. A sovereign woman is a woman who is unwilling to open to just anyone or anything. A sovereign woman is willing to open only to the very few, to the rarefied and the proven. A woman's virginity, her sovereignty over herself, her ability to protect herself, to reserve herself, to receive someone or something that can protect her and provide for her in return, this quality is, for the reasons I outlined above, one that does not thrive under or often survive the pressures and expectations of the university culture. A woman must surrender her sovereignty, at least intellectually, psychologically, and emotionally, to succeed in the university milieu. Because a woman is a whole being, because that being is not reducible to parts, even to genitals, wombs, or breasts. Surrendering her psychological and intellectual sovereignty might induce a descent down a slippery slope that could later include more laxity concerning her sexual choices. If it is good for the goose, as they say, it is good for the gander. If she is rewarded, at least with approval and good grades, for her intellectual, psychological openness, might she also, if only unconsciously, believe more easily that she will also be rewarded for a greater sexual openness. This is only a hypothesis, of course, but one would expect to see exactly the present culture of sexuality on university campuses if the hypothesis was correct. A culture that not only approves of, but socially rewards sexual promiscuity. Perhaps this is what concerned the old-fashioned, bigoted, backward chauvinist who believed that women should not be educated. Perhaps it is only a coincidence. Nietzsche is just such a one of these archaically misogynistic gentlemen, who railed against the education of women as well as the attainment of equal rights, equal training, equal claims and obligations in public life for women, but perhaps not for the reasons we are used to hearing. Emancipation of women, Nietzsche explains, is the instinctive hatred of the woman who has turned out ill, that is to say, is incapable of bearing, for her who has turned out well. 
when such ill-turned-out women elevate themselves as woman in herself, as higher woman, as idealist woman, they want to lower the general level of rank of woman. The most sure means of lowering the general rank of woman, Nietzsche says, grammar school education, translated in some editions as university school education, trousers, and the political rights of voting cattle. These ill-turned-out women act from the instinct of revenge, and wherever they are seen to struggle against man, this is only means subterfuge tactic. Really, these women want to dethrone their fairer sisters, to level the playing field by bringing down these more beautiful, healthy, fertile, good, husband-winning women, the womanly women who defend themselves tooth and nail against any kind of rights in general. For the healthy, instinctual, well-formed, feminine woman is, in her uneducated and unemancipated state, in a superior position by far, not only over her uglier, weaker, less fertile sisters, but over men as well, in the eternal war between the sexes. If this is not clear enough, I will labor the point a bit further with the help of Nietzsche's ever-fine and incisive words. The emancipation of woman insofar as it is desired and demanded by women themselves, and not only by masculine shallow pates, thus proves to be a remarkable symptom of the increased weakening and deadening of the most womanly instincts. There is stupidity in this movement, an almost masculine stupidity of which a well-reared woman, who is always a sensible woman, might be heartily ashamed. To lose the intuition as to the ground upon which she can most surely achieve victory, to neglect exercise in the use of her proper weapons, to let herself go before man, perhaps even to the book, where formerly she kept herself in control, and in refined, artful humility. What does all this betoken if not a disintegration of womanly instincts, a defeminizing? Women, in Nietzsche's opinion, are not stupid. Stupidity in a woman, he says, is unfeminine. Stupidity, therefore, is not the reason Nietzsche disdains the idea of equal access to education for women. I do not consider myself to be stupid either. However, I do recognize that I, that women, have different intellectual capacities than men, simply because women also have a capacity that men do not, the capacity to gestate new life. This privilege requires certain obligatory protection. It is not at all that I am incapable of learning, reasoning, or understanding on the same level that men do. What life energy, however, am I trading to accomplish this? What measure of my generative nature and my feminine qualities am I giving in exchange for this intellectual training? How does it ask me to open myself to too many things, things which use me and do not serve my best interest? How does it violate me due to my more receptive nature in a way that it might not violate a more masculine being? My entire feminine being is pregnable in a way that masculine being is not. The womb is one expression of that gestational capacity, but it is not the only one. I am, generally speaking, as a healthy woman, instinctively protective of my womb. I am protective of it because whatever seed is sown there may well become a living being that also may well kill me on its way out and that will literally eat me as I live while it is growing to independence. Survival requires me to be willing to welcome into that sacred space only the seed of a man who is both willing and able to protect me while I gestate his child, and also to protect and provide for that child once it is given birth. My experience and the requirements of my well-being are similar on a psychological, emotional, and intellectual level. The ideas that come into my mind fertilize the fecund ground of my intellect, 
Those activated seeds take root. They grow in me. They become something that is not just me, but also mine. Something for which I have responsibility, for which I must provide care at my own expense. As a healthy woman, therefore, I must also protect my mind. I must only allow into that sacred space the seeds of those ideas which can and will protect and provide for me, and whatever is gestated from the conception that occurs there. The seed of an idea, like the seed of a man, is consequential to any woman who receives it. Because men are less pregnable by nature, which is reflected in their lack of a naturally occurring gestational space in their pelvis, the idea seeds that enter into them also affect them differently. Men disseminate ideas. They gestate them much less so. Receiving an idea is simply an opportunity to spread it. It is not an obligation to conceive, gestate, and then feed and support the, that idea as it embodies. While promiscuity, both sexually and intellectually, might be an expression of a healthy life force in a man, it is an expression of an attenuated life force in a woman. She has lost her capacity to keep herself in control and in refined, artful humility, and she suffers from the loss of that instinctual caution, choosiness, and discrimination. Sexual sovereignty is not, however, the same as total chastity or celibacy. I do not simply because I dislike being drowned in information stop reading and learning entirely. The fact that I do not want to be, say, a drugged up, passed out woman who submits unconsciously to a gang rape does not also mean that I hate sex and avoid it entirely. Nietzsche likewise insists that the preaching of chastity is a public incitement to unnatural practices, depreciation of the sexual life. He says, all the sullying of it by means of the concept impure is the essential crime against life, is the essential crime against the Holy Spirit of life. In the gay science, he also considers the plight of women in his day who receive no education whatever about erotic matters, who are taught to consider sexual intercourse as only evil and a source of shame for them, and who are then hurled as with an awful thunderbolt into reality and knowledge with marriage and indeed by him whom they love most and esteem, to have to encounter love and shame in contradiction, yea, to have to feel rapture, abandonment, duty, sympathy, and fright at the unexpected proximity of God and animal, and whatever else presides. In conclusion to this whole consideration on female chastity, Nietzsche asserts one cannot be too kind about women, a gentlemanly response from an aristocratic nature without doubt, in spite of his concern for the shame with which women had to deal with the problem of sex and his clear distaste for the preaching of chastity, I do not also believe that Nietzsche would have advocated for thoughtless promiscuity, especially when the valuation and promotion of such promiscuity is part and parcel with emancipation of women, or what we now call feminism. In the self-same section in which he decries the preaching of chastity, he also claims that there is no sure means to lower the general level of woman's rank than than through a university education. We cannot, of course, simply turn back the clock of cultural values and reinstitute social systems for which conditions are no longer ripe. There are many reasons that the women's liberation movement, feminism, in all its waves, picked up steam and realized, not the least of which reasons being that it provided weak and less attractive men with easier sexual access to women. But that is a subject for another talk. Surely, many women suffered enormously under the weight of the patriarchy and their inability to remove themselves from abusive domestic situations due to a lack of social, financial, and political rights. 
This is, at least for Nietzsche, no argument against the unemancipated state of woman. For Nietzsche, the realization of the higher type of woman depends on a social system in which most women are not free, just as the realization of the higher type of man depends on a social system that includes, nay, requires, slavery. In order for me to have been born into a social system that did not feed me to the education system as grist for the mill, I would have to live in a world that tolerated and required a different kind of grist for a different kind of mill. Because my fate has manifested grist in this current incarnation of mine, I imagine that I would have fed the mill in any other kind of social system that I might now romanticize from a distance. And so, I am not agitating for a revolution. I am not seeking revenge. I am simply articulating what I have noticed in my experience. Perhaps some young woman braver than I was will get a hold of these ideas and be able to use them to realize a more instinctually sound relationship to her own life. Perhaps I am only fruitlessly attempting to save myself from what is already done, what cannot be undone, and may perhaps come again not once more but innumerable times more. I have my own peculiar fate that words and thoughts will not wash away. And as a disciple of Nietzsche, I have learned to love my fate, however unpleasant it has proven and may prove to be. That it hurts is no argument against it, to be sure. With his diatribe about emancipated women heeding the advice that Zarathustra received from the old woman, Nietzsche has not forgotten his whip. I, for one, do not mind the lash, however, for it chastises me only tenderly. I have managed to protect at least some of my womanly instincts and femininity in spite of the bewildering odds against me. I could have resisted more fiercely, I admit, and so I take the gentle scourge, and I do better in the present and the future. I am grateful for the correction because now I have an idea by which I can represent the command of my instinct. Now my consciousness, informed by this description, can rally to the aid of my instinct, rather than being bludgeoned to stupefaction by the botched, instinct-driven, abusive and vengeful behaviors of ill-formed women and the idiotic corruptors of women among the learned asses of the masculine sex. May the gods bless Nietzsche, I certainly do. He has helped me in this way to once again return to a peaceful and life-enhancing accord with my own instinct. I read very few things now that I have survived the harrows of hell that is called an education. I read mostly Nietzsche, for he is one of the few who has proved himself to be worthy of me.